This is It Takes Two. Amy Eiler, John B.C., our biology professor is in the house. And the first AMA, the first Ask Me Anything question coming into our text club at 35270 is, where do you work? (laughs) I am a former student from NDSU's Natural Resource Management Program and the Teacher Education Program. That's where I got my two master's degrees. Right now, I'm at Minnesota State University Moorhead in the Biosciences Department. Go Dragons. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) No bias. (laughs) No bias at all for me, of course. Uh, Okay, so some of the text messages in at 35270 we'll get to, but we noted that we wanted to talk a little bit about earthworms because you said you've been focusing a lot on them lately. Uh, yes, in the fact that I've been doing research anticipating questions. And we do have some a couple of non-earthworm-related questions in the chat right now that I do intend on getting to. Um, one about emerald ash borer and one about Lyme's disease. So we will get to those. Yes, and because those are both uh, hot, hot topics, and we can't afford not to cover those, honestly. Right. <laughs> yes. So first, just a little crash course on worms. Let's see if we can cap me to five minutes on this one. Okay. Um. So earthworms are, first a little bit about their classification, earthworms are what we call segmented worms. Uh, so they have like little segments, so they're, they're in the phylum annelida. We call them annelid worms. They're related to tube worms in the ocean and those kind of, if you ever heard David Attenborough talk about polychaete worms in, the, in like in the ocean or blue planet. So polychaetes, earthworms, they're also related to leeches. So if you look closer to leech, you'll see that they have very many segments on them. And... Uh, Earthworms have a very advanced nervous system and, and and numerous hearts. They have at least three hearts pumping blood throughout their body. They have a closed circulatory system with blood vessels, just like us. And uh, they have many ganglia running throughout their body that act like tiny little miniature brains. As far as whether or not they can feel pain, eh, uh, there's growing evidence that they may be able to. But the thing is... Uh, you shouldn't feel as bad as you do. If if you do feel bad, if you're one of those softies that feels bad about cutting a worm in half uh, to make bait out of, uh, I wouldn't feel too bad because uh, I'm going to tell you in just a second. Uh, first of all, when you cut them in half, they do not grow back. The front half does regenerate, but the back half will die. So you can't make two earthworms uh, by cutting a worm in half. There is an invasive flatworm in the south, uh, south uh, North America, not North Dakota, where if you cut it in half, it'll make two. But we don't get those up here. So Sounds that being, creepy. yeah, the hammerhead flatworms. Look those up. They're they're actually uh, the reason the hammerhead flatworms are bad is because they eat earthworms. But the thing about earthworms is that let's drop this bomb early on. The earthworms that are in Central America, Central North America, like the Midwest, they're not native. The only native earthworms are in the Southeast U.S. and in the uh, the Northwest. There may be some in the Northeast, but someone will have to back me up on that. Uh, but as far as any anything in the Great Lakes Basin, the Midwest, uh, where Lake Agassiz was, any any part of North America that was glaciated, earthworms are not native to here, and they are mm. actually from Europe. Uh, from Europe. Are <laughs> so, they important or detrimental to soil health? Both. And here's where things get a little bit gray. So it depends on where specifically and what habitat they're in. Uh, so farmers, um, soy is native to China. Wheat is native to probably somewhere in the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, that area. Uh, so it depends on what crop you had. But for the most part, earthworms are generally generally considered to be good for soil health uh, because a lot of the plants that we plant, including many ornamental plants, are not native to here. They're from the old world, Asia, as well, and that's where earthworms are from, Europe and Asia, mm. places like that. So whenever we bring plants that are from there to here, 
those things are adapted to earthworms and they don't they don't mind their presence. They're like, oh yeah, right. what's up? You're, <laughs> you're here too. We what know are the, you. What are the chances? <laughs> uh, so, but that being said, uh, where earthworms are very detrimental is in forests. Uh, like native forests, deciduous and coniferous forests in North America, at least in central North America. And the reason that this is happening is because, so earthworms are a key vital part of the decomposition cycle wherever they live. And usually what we find is that smaller invertebrates and smaller critters will eat smaller particles. Uh, earthworms are an exception in that they're obviously one of the biggest things in the soil, relatively speaking, yet they eat some of the smallest particles. So first you start off, you will start off with huge particles that will get broken smaller and smaller and smaller, and when they're really, really tiny, that's actually when earthworms will break them down. They don't eat big particles, they eat small stuff. And they, they plow through the soil and they eat dirt and they turn it into smaller dirt, and they, they chemically purify it and turn it into different compounds. So... Where this comes into play with forests is earthworms, despite being much, much bigger, actually directly compete with some types of fungus in the, uh, in the forest soil ecosystem. So if there's too many earthworms, they will outcompete many species of fungus, and that will allow bacteria to become the, the dominant decomposer in the uh, forest ecosystem. Usually bacteria and fungus are in kind of like an equilibrium or they'll trade blows. Maybe there's some... Uh, ecosystems like forests that prefer to have a fungus-dominated decomposing ecosystem. And what happens when there's more bacteria is that means that they're faster at breaking down the organic material in the soil, in the forest. And the bacteria will very quickly break down leaf litter and dirt into minerals. And the plants can't, uh, plants need a healthy, a healthy, ugh, can't talk, plants need a healthy mixture of minerals and soil organic matter and with if the uh, earthworms are breaking too much of that matter down, there'll be an overabundance of nutrients, or sorry, overabundance of minerals, and then the uh, the trees have a hard time taking up their necessary nutrients. So basically, TLDR: uh, earthworms outcompete fungus in forests, which is bad for soil health in forests, uh, leading to tree health decline. Hmm. Uh, okay. Let's get it. And the population of earthworms are they declining, or is it increasing? I would. I haven't paid attention to that. I would hmm. imagine it's either stabilized or increasing. But although I would assume that there are different uh, population trends in different parts of the region. Sure, that um, makes sense. Uh, um, uh, so a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a mild stroke here. So the there's another kind of earthworm that's universally bad. Uh, it's called the jumping earthworm, and it's also from Asia. Does and, it also jump? Oh, it might. It might do a little thing that looks like jumping that may or may not have contributed to its name. So when you pick up a jumping earthworm, so first off, the way, the way you can tell a jumper from a regular earthworm is you know that all all earthworms have that little band on yes. them, that like thicker band? Yeah. That band is called the clitellum, and it's used for reproduction. Earthworms are hermaphrodites, so they will go up to each other and they will kiss clitellums and they'll exchange sperm and eggs and then both worms will give birth to many different uh, cocoons that have tons of eggs inside them. So the clitellum in the jumper is lightly colored, like almost white, and it's closer to the head than it is in other earthworms. So oh, these are, things look crazy. I just looked up a video of jumping worms. and Yeah, they twitch and they squirm. Yes. Like They're very erratic when you pick them up, and that's why they're called jumpers. And they like... Like uh, So most of the earthworms that we're familiar with, which is, there's tons and tons of species that are actually, but they're mostly from Europe, as opposed to the jumping worms that are from Asia. And jumping worms are universally bad for everything, because unlike other earthworms that will 
aerate soil by making their tunnels and uh, provide lots of oxygen to the soil by going in different levels of the soil. Jumpers will only eat stuff from the topsoil. And the topsoil is one of the most important part for agriculture. So any farmer should be very leery of jumping worms. Uh, and the problem is they have been sighted in Minnesota. In fact, they've been seen on uh, U of M campus since 2007. So they are here. Oh, no. Uh, so basically, if you have a plant or a crop that's from Europe or Asia, it's probably going to do fine with earthworms. If you have a native plant, it's not going to do good with earthworms, at least not as good. And this will also affect native uh, insect populations. But if you have jumping worms, that's just bad news bears. Okay. And that's my earthworm spiel. There's the earthworms. Now we know more about earthworms than you ever have. And yes, we will put <laughs> this up into a podcast after the show. Okay, now let's get to our Ask Me Anything, which you can join the conversation at our Adventure RV Text Club at 35270, or that's 35270. Someone says, and I know that emerald ash borer has been a big topic on our airwaves yesterday and today, I believe. Uh, Joel Highcamp was talking about it this morning. Jack Sunday was talking about it yesterday afternoon. But someone says, now that emerald dash borer has been found in Moorhead, is there anything I can do to protect my ash trees? Yes. Yes, there is. Uh, so first of all, most when people hear about a pest like D Dutch elm, which is spread by certain kinds of beetles, as well as emerald ash, our knee-jerk response is to be like, what pesticides can I use? What can I spray this thing down right. with? And I want... Uh, as the resident biologist, I want to really caution you on that being your first knee-jerk response. The thing is, pesticides are very effective, but they are not specific. And the, the type of uh, pesticide that's most commonly used or historically has been against emerald ash is imidacloprid. And I may be pronouncing that wrong. You may know it by another name. But it's a type of neonicotinoid. And neonicotinoids attack the nervous system. And fun fact, the nervous system in all animals, every single animal from every worm, bug, person, fish, bird, they basically all work the same. Neurons work about the same way. So that means that neonicotinoids not only affect insects, but they have the potential to affect every other animal as well. But the other, animal, the other animals that they're most likely to affect are pollinators. And that would include not only bees and butterflies, but that would also include certain types of flies and beetles. And the emerald ash borer is a beetle. Uh, and you'd be, you would be surprised to know that flies and beetles and moths do make up a huge percentage of the number of pollinators, but it would also affect our native pollinators like bees. So we have mason bees, leafcutter bees. Um, there's a couple of other uh, sweat bees. So these are bees that will compete with the native honeybees, and these are at risk of being affected by ne neonicotinoids. Okay, John, so if we can't use neonicotinoids, right. then what can we use? <laughs> so there's a... I would highly recommend that you search up Integrated Pest Management, or IPM for short. My uh, undergr my graduate advisor is a specialist in this, so if you contact NDSU's entomology department, they have some IPM specialists there. So what integrated? We should probably be getting them on the show. We definitely should. Yeah, I love uh, that. Any from NDSU entomology, hit hit them up. Uh, so instead of using pesticides, what we can also do is the a big thing we can use is biocontrol. And biocontrol is using pathogens, parasites, and natural predators and enemies against the, uh, uh, against the beetle, against the ash borer. So a huge one that we can use are parasitic wasps. And so what's really cool about these wasps is they're no bigger than a pinhead, smaller than a mosquito. And these wasps do not sting. They're not like yellow jackets that sting people. Um, what's crazy is that there's 
thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of species of these little parasitic wasps. And there's almost, almost every species of insect has its own parasitic wasp species. That's, that's crazy, right? That's like, weird. Uh, in general, almost every animal on the planet has its own unique parasite. So, you know. So can it, we release enough of these to not worry about the emerald ash borer? Is that I, a little I think too? There's a, I think okay. there's enough that we can release that they will curtail their numbers. Uh, but right. the, they're, what the parasitic wasps do is they will find the larvae inside the wood and they will stick an ovipositor, which is like a long, it's a stinger kind of. And mm-hmm. they, they have this little stinger on their end and they will poke and inject an egg like a syringe into the larva of the ash borer. And then it will live inside the ash borer and eat it from the inside out. And that will kill it while that it's is... in its pupil phase or in, when it's adult. So sort of terrifying. But oh, good yeah. news. But good news in this front. Someone else asks, would burning off woods or grassland seasonally help control Lyme's disease? That's so interesting. I had never heard that as an option to try to control Lyme's disease. Yeah. And prescribed burns are heavily um, suggested in any case. You know, a lot of people do have a knee-jerk reaction to like, why are you setting the prairie on fire? But it's like prairies are very naturally developed to have seasonal fires. It's supposed to happen. And we have different types of plants that are very good at settling into new ecosystems right away. And we we have other plants that like a more established ecosystem to happen. But the point is we need a regular disturbance. And fire is a cause of that or a way for that regular disturbance to happen. And when you light plants ablaze or you light prairie plants like fields, tall grass, tall grass prairie, that's where the ticks like to hang out. And... Even according to studies done as recently as 2022, uh, burning has shown to impact tick populations and mm. curtail the spread of Lyme disease. So, yes, Interesting. It, it does work. Interesting. John B.C., professor of biology from MSUM, thanks so much for joining us. Love our science segments, and we'll see you back soon. Glad, uh, glad to be here, Amy. Take care. Here, Amy. Take care. <laughs>